heaven is a world of love. The kingdom of God is a place of love. The rule of God is a rule of love where everybody depends upon God and where everyone loves one another and where everybody cares for one another. Heaven's not yet. The kingdom in its fullness is not yet here. The rule of God, not everybody submits to it. But there is on earth right now an outpost of God's rule, of God's kingdom, of heaven on earth, of the rule of God where people are depending upon God and loving one another. And Acts 5 is the first place in the whole book of Acts that the church, those believers who are believing in Jesus Christ, is called the church. And what we see in Acts 4 and 5 is a picture of the church as those who depend upon God and who love one another. Those who fear God and love Him and walk in His ways. That's what I hope you'll see today is that the church is an outpost of God's kingdom here on earth. That it is an outpost of people who are depending upon God. Who are loving God and loving one another. Who are caring for the needy and who are walking in the fear of God. Today we're going to start in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. And what we see first is a prayer for boldness. The church coming together and praying for boldness. Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. Let's read those together. A prayer for boldness. Look and see what it says. When they were released, Acts chapter 4, starting with verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea, And everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let me kind of try and recap where we are. So, Peter and John are walking into the temple one day, and they see a man who's been crippled from birth, and in the name of Jesus Christ, that is, by the power of Jesus Christ, by the authority of Jesus Christ, in the name of Jesus Christ, as the risen king, as the risen Christ, they say that man, be healed, rise up and walk, and he goes leaping into the temple. He's fulfilling, there is a a picture of what the kingdom of God is going to be like, of what heaven on earth is going to be like, that is talked about from Isaiah 35, where, where the crippled man goes in, leaping into the temple and praising God. Well, he'd been crippled for over 40 years, and everybody knows that. Everybody had seen him, and so this gathers together a crowd, and everybody listens to uh, Peter preach, and Peter uh, preaches to them and proclaims to them Jesus Christ risen from the dead, uh, that Jesus Christ is the one who is offering to them to turn them, that they would repent of their sins and be saved. It is in the name of Jesus Christ that everyone who is saved is saved. Whoever will believe in him, whoever will repent of their sins, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved except the name of Jesus Christ that leads to a problem also where the priests do not like that there are unauthorized men preaching there are unauthorized men preaching an unauthorized message that they're proclaiming the resurrection of the dead well a lot of these priests who are from the the sect of the Sadducees they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead they especially don't believe in Jesus Christ risen from the dead and so they they imprison uh, Peter and John overnight and they Uh, talk to them and they try to pressure them and warn them and tell them do not preach in this name anymore and Peter and John say we cannot help but speak about what we have seen we've seen Jesus Christ risen from the dead they had been commissioned by Jesus Christ to proclaim that message in Jerusalem beginning in Jerusalem 
And so they said they can't say anything. The, the, the chief priests and the Jewish leaders all said, they all warned them, they all threatened them, uh, but they couldn't really do anything. They couldn't, they couldn't dispute what was happening, that the man had been healed. Uh, at the same time, they were afraid to imprison Peter and John because they were afraid of the people. Peter and John did not fear the Jewish council, but the Jewish council feared the people. And so Peter and John get released, and what happens is they go back, it says they go back to their friends. Literally, it is they go back to their own people. One of the things that's happening here is that God's people, uh, the church, what is later on going to be known as the church, this group of believers are developing their own identity that is separate from the rest of the Jewish nation, the rest of the Jewish believers. These are their, their people. They go back to their people, and they all gather together. They tell them what the chief priests and the elders had said. And when they heard it, it says they lifted their voices together to God and said. They said with one voice, probably from what we know about worship in the early church, there was one person praying on behalf of all the people, but everybody is, is praying and agreeing with them. Kind of like what we do when, uh, when we have the, the pastoral prayer after the scripture reading here, here this morning. Everybody, everybody is responding to the passage. Everyone is agreeing. There's one person voicing for the entire congregation of a prayer to God. And look at what they say. They lifted their voices together and said, Sovereign Lord. That word is a little bit different. It is a different word from the word that is typically translated as Lord, which is the word kurios. It's different from the word for God. Uh, it, it is the word from which we get a word like, it's not a very good connotation, but a word like despot. That is, somebody who has absolute authority. God is the one who is the ultimate supreme authority over all things. He rules, has power in a supreme, ultimate way over all things. They say, Sovereign Lord, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. It's one of the reasons why we're not supposed to make images of God by anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the sea because God made those things and cannot be contained. He cannot be represented by anything that he has made because he is maker. He made everything. They're starting off their pray prayer and saying, God, you control everything. You rule over everything. What does that imply? It means God, when we went before these leaders and they opposed us, you were in charge of that. You were ruling over that. You, were, you had power over that. That didn't happen because it, it caught you by surprise and you weren't really watching that day. It happened because you ordained it. You ruled over it. You decided that it would happen. They pray to, to God and they say, you made everything. You also spoke through the scriptures. So David is the one speaking. He's, there, he's quoting there from Psalm 2. David is the one who wrote that. And yet he did not write it on his own. He wrote it by the mouth or by the voice of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit worked through David so that it is David's words and what David wrote in David's vocabulary and David's syntax and David's language. But it is the Holy Spirit who controlled and superintended all these things so that, that the scriptures would be spoken. This is God's word. And so they quote from Psalm 2, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, they gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, against God's king. They all came together, and then they take this, and they take Psalm 2, and they apply it to what happened in Jerusalem against Jesus. They said Psalm 2 is about Jesus. In Psalm 2, the nations rage, the leaders of the earth, the rulers and the kings, they gathered against God's king, against the anointed. And Peter says, or the people are saying, that the church is saying, this is about Jesus. It says, Herod, Pontius Pilate, they gathered together against Jesus. It also includes the rulers or the, the Jewish leaders, those who called out and cried out, crucify him. They gathered against Jesus, and they crucified him. Well, look in verse 28. It says, they gathered together to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined, 
to take place. That is, Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the Jews are all gathering together. God had already spoken about it 900-ish years before in Psalm 2, that this was going to happen. And then it happened. And he said, this all happened according to what your plan and your hand had predestined to take place. This is one of the reasons why we believe in predestination is because the Bible teaches that God did these things. And even look at the way it says it. It says, you planned it, and then your hand did it. Sometimes people will want to try to make it as if God only saw beforehand what was going to happen, and then, and then he somehow, somehow maybe orchestrated or, or works it for, for good. And God certainly does work all things for good. But the reason why things happen is not because God post-destined it. He saw beforehand and decided that was what was going to happen. After he already knew it was going to happen, it says instead he predestined it. It doesn't matter what language you're reading that in. That means that God predetermined it. God decided that it would be before it even happened. That means that the most evil thing that ever happened on the face of the earth, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is perfectly righteous and perfectly holy, the most evil thing that ever happened on the face of this earth happened because God predestined it. Now, were Herod and Pilate, were they doing what they wanted to do? Yes, they were absolutely doing what they were free to do because they wanted to do it. Were those who cried out, crucify, cru crucify him, crucify him, were they doing it because they didn't really want to, but they were sort of forced to? That's not, that's not the picture of the Bible. That's not what we're talking about. That's not what happened. They were doing what they wanted to do. And yet, what they intended for evil, God intended for good. They were, the, they were the near cause. God was the ultimate cause. Now, we are human beings. And we as human beings should never seek to do evil that good may come. Do you know why? Because we're not God. But God can ordain evil that good may come. And do you know what that means for us? It means that God planned for Jesus Christ to be crucified. God caused Jesus Christ to be crucified. He planned and caused Jesus Christ to be crucified so that he could die in our place. He could die in the place of sinners so that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. There is no salvation apart from God's plan. There is no salvation apart from God planning the death of Jesus Christ for sinners like you and me, for every one of us who would turn from our sins and trust in Jesus Christ. And so we, we ought to believe in predestination. We ought to have a healthy understanding of predestination. So let's say that predestination is uh, one post put in the ground. There are also other things that we see in the first several chapters of the book of Acts. Predestination does not keep Peter from praying and proclaiming the gospel. So we put that in as another post in the ground. He, he goes out and he preaches. And in fact, in the last chapter, he said, there is nothing that you Jewish leaders or anybody on the face of this planet can do to keep us from speaking about what we have seen and heard. We're going to put that in as another post in the ground. It doesn't mean that people are freed from their responsibility. In the last chapter, he said, you killed, you killed the author of life. They're held responsible for their, their actions. Put that in as another post in the ground. He also makes the free offer of the gospel. He says to everybody who will listen, repent and you'll be saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who believes is saved. Put that in as another post in the ground. So you see, I've got four posts in the ground. I've got, I've got predestination, which we dare not deny because the Bible teaches it. We have human responsibility. We dare not deny it because the scriptures teach it. We, we 
we see that there is the proclamation and prayer, that there are, this is the way that God enacts his plan. We dare not deny that. We dare not say we don't need to preach the gospel. We don't need to pray. And we believe in the free offer of the gospel, that everybody, the gospel ought to be proclaimed to everybody, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, Jesus would be, would be saved. So we've set four posts in the ground. Now then, a lot of us will have questions about how and why. And if we can keep our how and why questions within, within these four posts, within these boundaries, then I think we can ask those questions. But our questions should never drive us outside those boundaries. It should never make us say that people are not responsible for their evil deeds. It should never say, it should never drive us to say that people are not, uh, should not, we shouldn't tell people to repent and believe the gospel. It, does, it shouldn't keep us from preaching or praying. And it shouldn't keep us from believing in predestination. That God causes all that is. We ought to keep it right here within these four Posts within these boundaries. And if we keep it here, that's a healthy understanding of predestination. There are unhealthy understandings of it. We need to believe in it. We need, need to believe in it in a healthy way. Now then, going on from there, what they're saying is, now God, these people were gathered against your holy servant, Jesus Christ. There's even that language from Isaiah where Jesus Christ, the, the coming servant who is going to lay down his life for God's people, that many would be accounted righteous. They opposed your servant. Now then, God, look out over your servants. Look at us. That please grant, look upon their threats and grant to your servants. Now then, look at what they ask for. They don't ask that the opposition would go away. That amazes me. I don't think it's wrong for us to ask, say, for instance, that the opposition would lessen in any case, or that there were, if there were persecution, that we would ask that persecution go away. I don't think that's a wrong thing to ask for. I'm just noting the fact that's not what they asked for. What did they ask for? Boldness. God, there's opposition. They don't say, take that opposition away. They say there's opposition, now grant that your servants would speak boldly. That we would be bold while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders perform through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. God, keep doing signs and wonders through the apostles to authenticate them as the messengers of God. That people would listen to their message, that the, the church would be established. Make it so that these things would happen. Make it so they would boldly keep speaking God's word. And they're connecting something here. They're saying Psalm 2 was about the opposition to Jesus when he was crucified. They're also saying that there is still opposition to Jesus. What, what does the form of that opposition take? What is the form of that opposition? It is that people would oppose the proclamation of that message about Jesus raised from the dead. Remember what we just talked about last week? There's that Acts 4.12. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Only the name of Jesus Christ. People don't want to hear that. And yet, that opposition is not opposition to us, it is opposition to Jesus. Anyone who makes that, anyone who is making that proclamation, everyone who is speaking that message, that opposition is not toward us mainly as believers mainly against Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who is declaring that. Now look at what, what happens. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They prayed and that place was shaken. This is a, a, a picture of God's presence among them. This is not, this is not metaphorical. This is not like like uh, I went to the prayer service and I got goosebumps. I mean, the, the, the building was literally shaking. The same way Mount Sinai, when God showed up, it shook. So when God is there, it's shaking. That doesn't mean that our prayer meetings, there's going to be an earthquake or a rumbling. What's the, uh, this is the beginning, and there's only one beginning. Sometimes things are different in the beginning. It does mean, though, that if we're going to speak boldly, it's going to become come as a result of 
prayer. If there's prayer, then there will be boldness. If there's no prayer, there will be no power. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They're filled with boldness. God is working in them. God is answering their prayer. You know, Jesus says, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. If you ask anything according to his will, it will be, be done for you. I don't think that means that you'll get a second Mercedes or that, that all, of your, all of your illnesses will be taken away. But if you pray for boldness from God, do you think he's going to withhold it? If you ask God for, to, to, for him to fill you with the Spirit, do you think he's going to withhold the Spirit? Jesus even says, Luke 11, do you, those who ask from good fathers or from evil fathers, actually, those who ask from evil fathers get good gifts. Don't you think that if you ask your father for the Spirit, you'll receive the Spirit? I think we can, I think we can count on, if we pray for boldness, that God will give us boldness to speak. I think we can count on, if we pray for the Spirit of God, then we will have the Spirit of God. If we pray according to God's will, we can count on Him doing for us what we ask. He hasn't promised everything that we might desire. What He has promised is that He will never leave us nor forsake us. That He will give us His Spirit. That He will cause us, even give us boldness to speak. This is the church depending upon God. Peter, Peter and John, Peter, who was afraid of all these people before Jesus was resur resurrected from the dead, is now speaking about Jesus. That didn't come from himself. He didn't, he didn't say, hey, I, I went to a class and I learned how to really speak well in front of a crowd and I did Toastmasters for a little while and, and that's what gave me boldness. I didn't go to an evangelism class. The Spirit made Peter bold. If you know the gospel enough to be saved, you know the gospel enough to speak it. Pray that you will be bold to speak God's word. So we see a prayer for boldness. Next we see generosity for the needy. Generosity for the needy. Look at verses 32 through 37. It says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many were, or as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. I think verse 32 is kind of a summary, and then verses 33 through 37 kind of expand on it a little bit. So it says, they, those who believed were of one heart and one soul. There was, there was this unity among those who believed, this this closeness this togetherness they were of one heart and one soul uh, soul and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own they had everything in common now i don't think we should take ideas from say the past couple of centuries and then put that on the people then people well, I, I think i think the idea of what them having everything in common meant is something like what we Boys say when we say mi casa es su casa. Don't, don't criticize my Spanish, but my house is your house. That is, what, what is mine is yours. I, I share everything with you. It doesn't mean the end of all personal possessions. Uh, the Eighth Commandment says do not steal, and that's restated in the book of Ephesians. Do not steal means people have the right to personal property. But what we use that personal property for is to do good to other people. And so what you see happening here is that you see that there is the, the power of the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now then, again, I want to go back to this word testimony. It's like the word witness that we've seen a couple of times before. Sometimes when we talk about giving our testimony, we will talk about what the Lord has done for us, maybe how we were saved. But the apostles are, that, that's good and appropriate. It's appropriate for us to talk about our experience with God. 
But the Christian faith is not rooted in our experience. Our experience is, is something that can be important for us, but our faith is not rooted in our experience. It is rooted in the facts of the gospel. Jesus Christ died on the cross. Jesus Christ was buried. And these apostles, that they are giving testimony of what they have seen with their eyes and heard with their ears and touched with their hands. They ate with him. They walked with him. They heard from him. They saw him with great power. They are giving testimony. But it also says in verse 33 that great grace was upon them all. It's not just the apostles. It's the whole church. It's what verse 32 says. All of them are the full number of those who believe. Great grace was upon all of them. God was working through all of them. And so what does that look like? Verse 34 says there was not a needy person among them. This is in Deuteronomy 15, 4. It says that in Israel, there should be no needy people. How could that be? I mean, the idea was what was supposed to happen in Israel was that Everybody was supposed to watch out for the needy. They were supposed to watch out for those who, who needed anything, who needed, needed the, the, the goods of life. And they were supposed to provide for them. Now then, what's happening is what was intended to happen in Israel, but very rarely happened, is happening in the church. Because the Spirit is causing people to be generous with what they have so that there are no needy people in the church. When there's anybody needy at the tr in the church, somebody goes and, and takes what they have, and they go and they, they sell it. They sell their, their houses and their, their land. That's the main form of wealth that people had in those days. They go and sell it, and then they give the proceeds to provide for the needy. One notable person who does this is Barnabas. He goes and sells a piece of land, and he takes it, and he lays the proceeds at the apostles' feet, kind of this common fund to provide for the needy. And then when you read this, the question is, is this something that is intended for us today? I think if we understand it rightly, yes, it is. Now, I say if we understand it rightly. This doesn't mean that there's no personal property. People still have personal property. People still have houses. That's where the people met. So if you sell your house, you can't meet in your house. People, the idea is not that everybody goes and sells their house and gives it to a common fund. It's that everybody thinks of their house as not belonging to them, but as something that is being used for other people. You invite other people into your house. Doesn't mean the end of personal property. It also mean, doesn't mean that people shouldn't work. I think that sometimes people, there are people who take advantage of Christians' generosity but Paul in 2 Thessalonians 3 makes it very clear that he who is not willing to work shall not eat. Doesn't, doesn't end work. It also doesn't take the place of the family. So in 1 Timothy 5, ordinarily, you have husbands and fathers, heads of the household who are the primary providers for their family. Parents are providing for their children. When parents get too aged, too old to take care of themselves, then then families take care of them. So if there's somebody who's needy in your family, you're responsible to take care of the needy in your family. But it's also the reality that there are people in this age who really and truly are needy. And they don't have family to take care of them. And so for those who are in the church, for godly widows, the way that, that Paul gives the example in 1 Timothy 5, there are godly widows who have a, a reputation for having raised children and, and washed the feet of the saints, that is, they've served in the church. Whose responsibility is it to take care of them? It's the churches. In fact, we ought to think about how do we make sure that there are no needy in the church. If there, is any, if there is anybody who cannot take care of themselves, the church ought to take care of them. If there is anybody who does not have a family who, will, who can take care of them, it ought to be the church that will take care of them. All those who are part of the church, God, the, the church takes care of them. That means that if you have two shirts and you see somebody who has no shirts, take one of your shirts and you can give it to them means if you have two loaves of bread, you have somebody who has no bread, take one of your loaves of bread and give it to them. It also means if you see somebody who has nothing, you might, you have two houses, you go ahead and sell one of your houses, and you give to those who are needy. 
in the church, there should be nobody who is homeless or naked or hungry. Doesn't necessarily mean that they'll have all, that, that there will be equal distribution of all the luxuries of life. But it does mean that there will be no one who is needy. No one who is destitute. You know what this is about? This is about heaven on earth. It is about the kingdom of God, the outposts of, of God's kingdom right here. In the new heavens and new earth, there will be no needy. In the wilderness, when the people were crying out for food, there, were, there was nobody who had too much and nobody who gathered too little. In Israel, there was supposed to be nobody who was needy. We ought to prepare ourselves as a church and as individuals to make sure that there are no needy among us. No one naked, no one hungry, no one homeless. We'll take care of them. Those who believe in Jesus Christ, those who are of the household of faith, those who are, are godly widows, we'll take care of them. We'll love them. We'll take care of them. No needy in the church. So you see that, that there, is, there is generosity for the needy. The next thing you see is that there is judgment for liars. Let's read Acts 5, verses 1 through 11 says but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles feet but Peter said Ananias why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land while it remained unsold did it not remain your own and after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have con contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her, her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So Ananias and Sapphira make a plan. They sell a field. They sell some property. They, they do it together. They, they each know what's happening. So they are, they are like the Herod and Pilate. They are like the Jewish and Gentile leaders. They are conspiring together. They make this plan together, and they go and sell this field, and they present it to the church as if, uh, they were giving all the proceeds to the church for the property. Now then, did you notice in verse 4? Look at, look at chapter 5, verse 4. Peter says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? What does that imply? It implies, hey, it was your property. You could sell it or not sell it. After you sold it, you could give part of the money, all the money, some of the money, a little bit of the money. It was yours to do with what you wanted to. But you presented it, you lied by presenting it as if you gave all of it. Now, why did, why did Ananias and Sapphira do that? I think on one level, on the human level, they were motivated by the praise of other people. Jesus tells us in Matthew 6 that when you give, do not do it for the praise of other people. Now, sometimes you can't keep a good deed hidden. So when Barnabas sold his field and presented that at the apostles' feet, sometimes you can't hide that. And it's good for uh, that example to be recorded for us. It's good for us to know about that example so that we can follow that example. But Jesus teaches us that when we give, we should do it in secret. Not even, not even kind of using some hyperbole, but not even letting our left hand know what our right hand is doing. Like that's how secret you keep it. You keep, your, you keep your, what your right, right side of your body is doing secret from the left side of your body. 
Keep it a secret. You keep it a secret so that you can receive a reward from God and not from people. Ananias and Sapphira saw how people responded to Barnabas' gift, and they thought, well, we want that same kind of praise. We want the praise of people. You also see another level, though. Peter says, Satan filled your heart. Ananias and Sapphira, they're not spirit-filled. They're Satan-filled. They are aligned with Judas, a lover of money, a lover of the praise of men. Filled your heart, Satan filled your heart so that you did this. You lied not to men, but to God. Now then, the fact that Satan filled Ananias' heart to do this, does that relieve Ananias of responsibility? Not at all. Do you know how we know? Because God killed Ananias. If we think of God as the cause of all things, does that mean that Ananias can say, no, God, God made me do it. No, when anyone is tempted by tempted to sin, let them not say that God does it, but their own desire leads them to sin. And when somebody does evil, they can't say the devil made me do it. And take responsibility for our own sin. I think in our own day, when we think about the way that people think about behavioral and biological determination, that is, I am born a certain way, or my upbringing made me a certain way, we're not I'm not saying that those things can't be causes or influences in our lives. They most certainly are. But we take responsibility for our sin. We are responsible for our sin. I want you to understand that. We are, when we sin, what do we say? Do we say, God made me do it? Do we say, Satan made me do it? Do we say that my upbringing made me do it or I was born this way? No, we don't say that. I'm responsible for my sin. I confess my sin. The ethics and even the psychology of biblical Christianity is very different from the world. Because whatever we say, all the, all the ways that we might talk about the things that cause me and make me the way that I am, we never say, I'm not responsible. We are responsible. We are responsible for our sin, and the wage of sin is death. If you're not willing to take responsibility for your sin... You can't be forgiven of your sin. The good news of forgiveness of sin only makes sense if I say, I sin. I can't be forgiven of something that's not my fault. But sin is my fault. And you know what? You can't change until you take responsibility for your sin. You can't, you can't ask God, make me different until you recognize that it is your responsibility. If, if something out there makes me the way that I am, and only something out there, and I have no responsibility for it, how can I change? But if God says, I have responsibility, and God says, I will give you the spirit to change, I can take responsibility for my actions. I can take responsibility for my sin. I can take responsibility for my desires. And I can call out to God and ask him to change me. No, Ananias is responsible. And God kills Ananias. Now then, I want you, before we move past that first paragraph, look at what Peter says. He says, in verse, verse 3, Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. Now then, you look at verse 5, what does it say? You have not lied to man, but to God. What does that say about who the Holy Spirit is? It says that the Holy Spirit is God. And some people will object to that, and they will kind of make it out to, to, to seem like maybe Peter is just being maybe loose with his language you really need to understand something about first century Judaism and first century Jews is that they did not refer to anything that was not God as God. They were very, very careful to not call anything that was not God 
God or treat anything that was not God as God. They didn't worship anything not God. They didn't call anything God that was not God. They were extremely, extremely careful. So when you see Peter saying, you have not lied to man but to God because you lied to the Holy Spirit, he's saying the Holy Spirit is God. There was a man in the 4th century. His name was, he's known as, I'm sure his friends just called him Basil. He was known in, in history as Basil of Caesarea. Basil of Caesarea would, would pray something in his prayers in, in the church gathering. Sometimes he would say, we glorify you, Father, with the Son in the Holy Spirit. There are a lot of people who didn't have a problem with that. Most people didn't have a problem with that because they were okay with the Spirit empowering people to glorify the Father with the Son and the Son with the Father. One of the things Basel would also say is, we glorify you, Father, with the Son and with the Holy Spirit. And Basel had to go and write a whole defense about why that was okay. But the defense is right here. We glorify, we are those who glorify the Father with the Son, with the Spirit. Because we have been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we know the love of God. And the grace of Christ Jesus and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. We glorify Him with God. Because he is God. You can even see it in the next paragraph. Ananias, uh, Ananias' wife, Sapphira, comes in a little bit later. Uh, about three hours later, enough time for the young men to go out and bury Ananias and to come back. And when she comes in, she doesn't know what's happened. Uh, Peter asks her, did you sell the property for such and such a price? And she says, we did. And so I'm thinking it was just about that time, the young men who, the guys, you got to have young guys to bury, to bury, to dig holes, say they're going to bury you same as they did your husband. Because you, look at what he says again, you tested the spirit. Deuteronomy 6, we are forbidden to test the Lord. We are forbidden to test in Deuteronomy 6. Jesus quotes this in, in Matthew 4. We are forbidden to test Yahweh. Do not test the Lord. She tested the Spirit. She tested the Lord because she was testing the Spirit who is the Lord. And she died. Sometimes people talk about, man, I wish we could go back to the way things were in the early church. you understand, I want you to understand what's happening here. The same way that the, the healing of the crippled man from birth was a sign of the age to come, so the judgment of Ananias and Sapphira is an indication of the age to come. When Jesus returns, he's going to heal all the crippled people who believe in him and more. In the new heavens and new earth, in eternal life, there will be no one who is crippled, no, no one who is blind, no one who is mute, no one who has cancer, no one who suffers in any way. Jesus Christ, when he returns, he comes to save. And when he is healing and when his apostles are healing and when all these things are done, it is a sign of the age to come. What is heaven and on earth going to be like? What is a new heaven and a new earth going to be like? What is eternal life going to be like? It's going to be no suffering no illness, no disease, no injury. But when Jesus Christ returns, he's not only coming to save, he's also coming to judge. Because you know what else won't be in eternity? What else won't be in a new heavens and a new earth? There won't be any sin. There won't be any, any liars. There'll be lots of Barnabases in heaven. And no Ananiases in heaven. And if you, if you want, those who want 
to be in heaven with God, who want eternal life with God, one of the things that the Spirit does in us is it stirs us up to, at the very least, want to be Barnabas and not want to be Ananias. Because you know what, what Ananias and Sapphira are doing? They're not, they're not just sinning against the other people. They're sinning against Jesus. That unity and love and generosity that's displayed at the end of chapter 4, that's what the church is supposed to be. That's what the kingdom of God will be. That's what a new heaven and a new earth will be like. That's what eternal life will be like. It will be no one needy. All the crippled people leaping and praising God. Everybody of one heart and one soul. Everybody not thinking of anything as belonging to them. That doesn't necessarily mean that in eternal life there won't be any personal property. But it will be personal property used for the intention of loving God and loving our neighbor. Always, all the time. And the people who threaten that can't be there. we got to want to be Barnabas and not be Ananias. we got to want to be that in the church. You look there at the end in verse 11. It says, great fear came upon the whole church. That's the first time the word church is used in the book of Acts. A lot of you will know that translates ecclesia. Now, the word ecclesia can mean all kinds of assemblies of various kinds. Lots of times even civic assemblies, like, like, like government assemblies of all kinds. But that word ecclesia, do you know what it's used for in the Greek Old Testament? It's used to describe Israel, the congregation of God's people. These people are, these Jews who are believing in Jesus Christ, they are the continuation of true Israel. They are the remnant of believers that God called out of Israel to form a church, an identifiable body that is, that is distinct from the Jews around them. It is those who believe in Jesus Christ. It is those who are depending upon Jesus Christ. It is those who are committed to loving one another. We are the outpost of God's kingdom on earth. We are those who are submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. We are those who love one another in the name of Jesus Christ. You also see, we are those who walk in the fear of the Lord. The result of Ananias and Sapphira dying, being killed by God, is that the great fear fell upon Everybody who heard about it. Great fear fell upon the whole church. Luke doesn't picture that as a bad thing. He pictures it as, you know, if you are afraid of testing the Spirit or of lying to the Spirit, he thinks that's a good thing. He thinks we ought to be reverent. We ought to think of God as awesome. We ought to be calling God sovereign lord who made earth and heaven and the sea and everything in them and we ought not just be saying that with our mouths we ought to be saying that in our minds and in our hearts we ought to know that god is not like anything that he has made he is the maker he is different from us he is righteous we ought to be loving is there a better picture of the love that the church is supposed to have for one another than the end of Luke 4? That is terribly challenging. That same church is the one that is also praying for boldness. It's also the one that is walking in the fear of the Lord. The same one that the, the people who love one another are also the ones who revere God. The ones who provide for the needy are the same ones who fear God. Let us be, may the Spirit of God cause us to be, those who speak with boldness, who are generous with the needy, and who walk in the fear of the Lord. Let that be who we are. May God make that who we are. Let's pray together. Father, you do you can do what no one else can do 
you are able to do. You are able to make people who are um, otherwise selfish, otherwise uh, denying our culpability and our sinfulness. You are able to make people who are otherwise uh, timid. You are able to make us loving and generous. You are able to convict us of our sin. You are able to make us those who walk in the fear of the Lord. You are the one who is able to make us bold to speak. God, please give to us what you command. That you are the one who gives the resources. You are the one who gives us the ability to say that those things that belong to us, they don't really belong to us, they belong to you. And that when you increase what we have, that we would be ready to look out for those who are needy, to provide for the needy, to care for the needy. Please grant that we would no longer be timid, that we would not be cowed by those who oppose your message. But that we would walk in the fear of the Lord. Grant that we would repent. We would repent of our wickedness and our sin and turn to you. If you would, God, please grant that we would be able to see it. That we would be able to see transformation in ourselves and in our church. That we wouldn't just see this picture in Acts 4, but that we would see it on Sunday mornings and all through the week. That we would see people giving up what belongs to them for the good of others. We would live with boldness in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, all the places that we go, and we could not help but speak of Jesus. Please, God, grant that we would see it, that we would be able to see your work among us, that we would be able to know that the Spirit is at work, that we are all filled with the Spirit, that your grace is upon us all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.